Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is episode 521, Enslaved to Time. How can we learn to be interruptible? How much does faith matter when it comes to healing the sick, and how do we develop an environment of faith? We're going to tackle these questions and more as we study the second half of Matthew chapter 9. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, We're back again, part 21 now on uh, this series of teaching we've been doing on the Gospel of Matthew. I told you last week uh, when we did chapter 9, we we could only do half. There's just, it was too rich. There's too much. And um, what we have here in chapter 8 and 9 is Matthew has brought together Uh, the healing activity of Jesus. There's other healings, but here he's compressed to show us not only his his authority as a teacher up on the mountain, but um, as one who who does the activities of the kingdom. And so in this section today, we're going to witness four healings. And uh, as, as Matthew continues in his theme of Jesus' authority expressed both in word and action, um, but what we're going to see a little bit today, last week it was very paramount, but we're going to see that once again, as he extends the kingdom with authority, it brings him into conflict with the religious leaders. So, the, the first section we're going to look at is, is a girl restored to life and a woman healed. Uh, there's two stories about desperate need here, and they're kind of intertwined. Um, St. Augustine says, when he looked at kind of the spiritual or uh, allegorical meaning in these stories, St. Augustine said that the, that the, the religious uh, ruler, who we know as Jairus, he represents the Jews and the woman represents the Gentile church. Well, why would this woman represent the Gentile church? This is very interesting. The woman who was healed of the of the hemorrhage, of the bleeding, she came from Caesarea Philippi, which was a Gentile city just kind of on the outskirts of Galilee. And what's interesting, there was an ancient statue uh, for centuries. Uh, at the near the entrance to the city, the gates of the town, and it was of this very incident of the woman uh, bending down on one knee and stretching out her hand to reach Jesus' cloak. Really interesting little bit of history there. So let's look at the passage. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before Jesus, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him with his disciples. We see here uh, he knelt before him. uh, In in Luke's version, it says uh, that he knelt down at Jesus' feet and begged him. Where did we see this before? Well, the first healing story, the leper earlier on, the leper, and uh, that he too knelt down and begged him. So what jumps out to me, at least, is uh, that desperation in our lives is a great equalizer. Suddenly it doesn't matter how much 
money we have or how much prestige or or anything that that desperation brings us all to the very same place and matthew goes on while he was saying while he was saying these things suddenly matthew is continuing to give us a great sense of of the activity of the kingdom it's 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 almost uh, relentless i've referred to uh, John 151 in the past, where he said that the activity of heaven, the angels of God ascending and descending. So what do we have here in this collection of healings? Well, we have the first encounter with a religious leader. Up until now, it's been outcasts, it's been Gentiles, but now we have a religious leader. He's including insiders, not just outsiders. Now, it's interesting. Uh, he has faith, but it's not as great as the unclean centurion who said, you don't have to come. It, it, just say the word. This man doesn't have that kind of faith. He's, he's desperate. Please come, please come. But you know, Jesus responds to whatever level of faith um, that the man had, and that's true for us too. The, the, there's a great sense of urgency the, the the story has a, a a momentum, a movement that's quick. There's urgency. So it's like if this was in the movies, you'd see it's like the clock is ticking. Please come, please come. And uh, we feel the restraint of time. Uh, to be honest, in the early years when I would read this story, I'd always almost be a little frustrated that the, the, the woman... Uh, with the issue of blood, but but he's got to get to Jairus's daughter. But you know, Jesus doesn't feel any pressure uh, about time. He gets up and he follows him with his disciples. And for me, I see here again an example that this chapter will finish with of the compassion of Jesus. It, and he wasn't motivated, you know, by expediency. We've got to get this done. It, it, it's just compassion. But we don't get as many details in this story once again uh, in Matthew's account. As I've told you, Matthew's style is he kind of keeps to what he considers the essentials. Um, when we read it uh, in Mark and in Luke, we see a strong connection that is still here between faith and healing. So Jesus is on his way. He's following the the religious leader, Jairus, which we know from from Mark. Um, And in the midst of it, this woman with the bleeding comes into the story. Verse 20 to 22, then suddenly a woman who'd been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years, that's a long time, folks, <coughs> excuse me, came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So, as I said, it appears to us like Jesus is being interrupted. He's being delayed on his mission. 
it's interesting, you know, I really see because I get to spend at least until COVID so much of my life in the developing world, we in the West have have such a different perspective of time. And frankly, we are enslaved to time and schedule. Uh, I certainly am. You know, I've got I've got things scheduled today, and probably you do too. But in the developing world, still, it is like the ancient world where they just, what comes that day is what gets their full attention, even if there's interruptions. And that was like Jesus' world. In the other accounts, we know that the woman had been impoverished by her diseases. as She spent everything she had on, on doctors. Um. I encountered that um, in a village in Uganda where um, I've shared before, I think, uh, uh, an old man was instantly healed. He he got out of bed after eight years. Uh, the Lord opened his ears, opened his eyes. But um, just down the road, my friend saw a woman on the front porch and talked to her, said, hey, can we pray for you? She said, yes. My husband and I have no more money. We, we, we are so much trouble trying to feed our family because, you see, we've spent everything we have on my father's medical treatment because for eight years he's been in a bed and he's deaf and blind. And they will say, we have wonderful news for you. Jesus just healed him. So not only was that man healed, but this woman and her family, uh, their economic situation changed immediately. And I just wanted to point that out because, as I say, in, in the other synoptic accounts, we learned that this poor woman, not only being a social outcast, but this had totally impoverished her. So Jesus is continuing to um, stress the connection between faith and healing because he says, your faith has made you well. But I... I there's something here that really grabs to me, grabs me. He he says, daughter. That's the first thing he says in this account. Daughter. The healing word to her was one of her true identity. It was spoken to a woman who, because of her malady, she was ceremonially unclean every day for the last 12 years. So his first word is identity, your daughter. And and this feels so gentle to me. I I really believe in a gentleness um, in healing ministry. You know, I've said it before. I often teach people, they get excited. Oh, I saw two arms healed and and a neck healed. And say, no, you saw two people uh, whose arm had been in pain or damaged and it's now been restored. God has restored those people. So I see here something very personal. This is a this isn't just about her her twelve years of bleeding stopping. This is this is about a woman whose life is rescued. You know, it's funny, um in <clears throat> Mark and Luke's account, we get a much clearer picture. Um that Jesus called this woman forward to himself. Um, they, in that account, we see that that he stopped. 
because there was a great crowd around him. He says, whoa, who touched me? So why did he call her forward? Well, Chrysostom, again, wonderful church father, he gave some different reasons. Number one, he called her forward because he wanted to put an end to her fear that she felt that somehow she had almost like stolen a healing by just reaching out in the crowd and, and touching his garment, that she hadn't asked permission. Secondly, he corrects her belief that she has no right to be seen, that she's invisible, that she shouldn't be there. He, he's, he's healing not only her body, but her wounded heart. And third thing he's doing is suddenly the whole crowd, he, he makes her faith uh, a demonstration, an exhibit to everybody. And also, by healing her bleeding without her asking, Christostom says he's showing that he, he, Jesus has perfect knowledge of all things. So Matthew's telling us that the inheritance that had been prepared for Israel is now being appropriated by the nations. This Gentile woman's faith was superior to the Jewish leader's faith. She just reached out. She just knew. She didn't have to say, come with me, please, please come pray for me. She had the superior faith. Matthew was was very clear in this. And, uh, and so we're seeing him saying some things beneath the surface level about the whole nature of uh, Jesus' healing ministry and also its reception. So it's interesting to me that he doesn't actually show us the woman actually touching Jesus' garment. But uh, it's clear, as I've said in Mark and Luke, but it also, there's a wonderful phrase, Jesus said, who touched me for I felt power go out from me. Um, you know, healing's personal. It expresses love for an individual. And uh, now certainly healing isn't the only expression of love. If someone isn't healed, are they not loved? No, I'm not remotely saying that. But But when someone's healed... There's a there's a great love expression that uh, that I think very often heals their heart. It's interesting that that he wanted her to know that she was loved. That's part of why he differentiated her from the crowd, called her out, as it were. Um, now, maybe the reason that Matthew, remember, he's writing to the church in Antioch. Maybe the reason, we can only guess, that he bypassed this whole thing of touching the hem of Jesus' garment is he was discouraging um, any kind of superstition or, or touching sacred objects without relationship. Um, perhaps this Gentile woman had kind of a superstitious kind of faith. Maybe, we don't know. But Jesus didn't care. He used her faith. Anyway, we're guessing that that's why Matthew bypassed the whole thing of the, the hem of his garment. Let's move on. When, when Jesus came to the leader's house and saw the flute players, because now he's back on, on mission, he, when he saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, 
Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping, and they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl got up. And the report of this spread throughout the district. Uh, let me just read some of this in Luke's account, Luke 8, 49-50. While he was still speaking to her, the woman, uh, a messenger arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and he told Jairus, your daughter's dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. And then this has been strong for me in, in praying for folks for, for a couple of decades, maybe this verse. But when Jesus heard what had happened, he said to Jairus, do not be afraid. Just have faith and she will be healed. I feel like he's saying to Jairus, no, no, don't look at them with that report. Look at me. Just believe. Like chapter 8, with Jesus calming the storm, where we see faith over fear. First it was the disciples, now it's a Jewish leader. Just Hebrews 12.1, fix your eyes on Jesus. Like what I talked about last week, the humility of faith is not us trying to have enough faith in our ability to have faith, but just a humble trusting or fixing our eyes on who Jesus is. By the way, when he arrived there, he says there were flute players. Uh, Flute players were always hired for funerals. Uh, Even the poorest were uh, supposed to have at least two flute players and one mourner or wailer for uh, when someone died, and that's what he walked into. Now, Jesus sent them out because he was about to reverse the finality of death. They laughed because they thought, ha, he's the great healer and he's arrived too late. They thought Jesus was about to make a fool of himself. Jesus' words, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. In those words, there's something so powerful here. Jesus is denying that death is final. He also put them out because healing's not a show. And he put them out because, because he's telling unbelief to leave. Unbelief's powerful. In, in, uh, in Mark 6, he's, he's in his hometown and they wouldn't believe him. And it says he couldn't do very many miracles. He marveled at their unbelief. So he's getting rid of unbelief so that only faith could be in the room. I think there's a really good uh, learning for us right there. So, Matthew was showing that Jesus' authority as Christ extended even over the dead. The Jewish law said, never touch a dead body because it will defile you. (laughs) Instead of defiling, her body came to life. Jesus was discipling those who he knew were ready for this lesson. And one of the three that's in that room is Peter. And in Acts 9, 39, we read that when Peter went into a room of a woman named Dorcas who had died, he did the very same thing. He cleared everybody out. And in in that place of faith, he prayed for her and she was raised up. Matthew is stressing in this story the importance of faith, even weak faith, You've got to come with me for this to happen. Or misguided faith, 
the, the superstitious faith of, of the woman. But he's saying, however it comes, faith's pretty important. Now, I want to just share with you one of the early church fathers, Chromatius. He sees in this story, again, a spiritual reading, a, a water-to-wine reading. So I'll quote him here. It is for us to understand that the entire mystery of our salvation is prefigured in this girl. Luke reports that Jesus directed the girl to eat something. After she's raised from the dead, he said, give her something to eat. The order of our faith and salvation is shown here. When each believer is freed in baptism from perpetual death, Paul says we are buried and raised with him in water baptism, and uh, and comes back to life upon the acceptance uh, of the gift of the Holy Spirit, it is necessary that the person also be directed to eat that heavenly bread about which the Lord says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no eternal life. Isn't that interesting? Again, he sees he sees that the literal meaning, what, what Matthew, his, his point, his purpose, he sees the, the moral reading. How, how do we learn from this? How do we become more Christ-like? And then this spiritual reading, which is fascinating. And that's why I've told you before, the spiritual reading, the Holy Spirit can speak to us uh, a new understanding every time we read the Scripture. And he uses it to, to go deeper into our heart and to give more revelation. Well, let's move on. Jesus heals two blind men and a mute man. Verse 27, as Jesus went on from there, two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith, let it be done to you. Do you see that again, that connection? And their eyes were opened. Then Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows of this. But they went away and spread the news about him throughout the district. Likely, Jesus has just raised Jairus' daughter from the dead, and he's leaving, and there's likely a crowd of astounded people. Uh, It says there's a large crowd following him. Now, when they say, Son of David, have mercy on us, this is the first time Matthew uses that phrase, Son of David. And it's obviously very messianic, um, and it is part of the identity of Jesus, but it also reflects kind of their, their more traditional messianic view that Jesus is going to come, uh, the Messiah is going to come and set them free from oppression and everything. And we've talked about that before. But this is the first time we hear Son of David. It's, uh, Matthew's going to use it six more times in this gospel, by the way. So what were they doing? They were confessing Jesus as Messiah. And, and so they saw that <laughs> in chapter 16, Jesus is going to say to his 12, who do you say I am? Thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So there's a great irony here. They were, they were physically blind, but they saw better than most others all around them. In, in Matthew's gospel, 
the blind, the lame, the mute, the Canaanite woman, the children at the temple, these are all outsiders, as it were. They, they're not in any way connected with the religious or social elite, the influential. But these outsiders all perceive the messianic identity of Jesus, while the insiders don't. What is obvious to two blind beggars and to a Canaanite woman remains hidden from Israel's leaders. Now, their cry was not just desperation directed to God alone. They didn't, they didn't say, oh, Jesus, please ask God to heal us, but to Jesus himself. So this is very Christological. We, we are seeing that there's a growing revelation. Jesus himself is healer. Jesus himself is We're moving toward the revelation that he's God. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is the only time in Matthew that Jesus specifically asks, do you believe that I'm able to do this? It's like uh, in Mark's account with uh, Bartimaeus, he says, what do you want? It's the same thing. Jesus is increasing their faith by drawing it out of them, having them say out loud what they need. Do you believe I can do this? Yes, Lord. Literally, by the way, uh, the word is simply amen. You know, every time you and I sing or say amen, it's a declaration that's saying yes, Lord. It's a declaration of faith in what the Lord can do. Remember that the next time you say amen at the end of anything, a prayer or a song. It's a declaration of faith. Then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Jesus did not ask anything of them. He didn't say, do you promise to continue to believe or to follow or to obey? All he asks is their faith at this moment, their faith in his ability at this moment. There's... He's not asking them to do anything or to qualify themselves. You know, the gospel is good news. It's not transitional good news. By that, I mean it's it's not a, a it's not good news that says if you'll believe this, then you'll get that. He just loves to heal. It's who. He is. By the way, I said transitional, I meant transactional. But but it's it's if you believe this, you get that. No, this Jesus, this incredible Jesus, he is love, he is mercy, he he just gives. I've heard it said, if you'll pray a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, then he will heal you. Not only is that wrong, I think that's heretical. Because that's not who he is. There's nothing transactional in the gospel or in Jesus. And then here we have this. Then he sternly warned them. See that no one knows of this. It's a really strong term. And it's only used this one place in Matthew. It means he warned them fiercely. So why did he do this? He heals them. He says, now don't tell anybody. Well... I've got a few things that are possible. 
Perhaps it was because they were the first ones who called out son of David. So maybe this is about holding on still to some some secrecy about his true identity as Messiah because it isn't ready to be revealed yet. Um, maybe it's Jesus simply needed a rest and uh, from the constant pressure until until he leaves Capernaum. Um, you know, it's interesting. Jesus led the men away from the crowd and went into the house. Christostom, St. Christostom said this, Here again, Jesus is teaching us utterly to resist the glory that comes from the crowd. So what did they do? Verse 31, <laughs> they went away and spread the news about Jesus throughout that district. This incident teaches us something important about discipleship. Receiving grace, having an encounter with the Lord, is not the same as obedience. And obedience is an underlying theme uh, in this whole gospel. The Sermon on the Mount is about what it means to be be obedient at the heart level. And uh, Matthew is saying, again, to the church, that obedience is what Jesus, to what Jesus commands is always necessary. Um, If we're going to truly follow him, we got to do what he says. Now, all that Jesus asked of these men was faith, absolutely. But there is an underlying theme here of obedience. So surely Matthew was pointing the church, as he wrote this, to the great Old Testament promise about the Messiah that was signs, marks of the, of the new, the messianic age um, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 is this. And when he comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer, and those who cannot speak will sing for joy. Surely his readers would have known this messianic passage from Isaiah because everyone knew it. So, In this healing section of Matthew 8 and 9, the blind see, the lame walk, the mute speak, the deaf hear, by the way, because the Greek word used for uh, the mute man, which we're about to get to, it can mean either, uh, can mean deaf and mute. The two usually go together. But not only that, in in this passage, he raised the dead and he healed long-standing sickness and so forth. But Matthew will explicitly tie these signs into the age of the kingdom, the Messianic age, when we get to chapter 11. You see, he comes at us in layers so that we're prepared, so that we're prepared. And here's kind of that first layer. Now, let's go uh, verse 32, 34 to the, the, the mute man. When they left, a demon-possessed man who couldn't speak was brought to Jesus. So Jesus uh, cast out the demon, and then the man began to speak. The crowds were amazed. Nothing like this has ever happened in Israel, they exclaimed. 
It's interesting. Jesus knew it was demonic, and, and that that so he cast out a demon. Not every time he encountered a mute person did he cast out a demon. There's there's this discernment, and they brought again. We see like we talked earlier with the paralytic. Um, he saw the faith of his friends who brought him. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? His friends in faith brought him. Jesus did not demand faith at all from the, the mute, probably mute and deaf man. Instead, he just simply healed him and immediately. You know, I'm always amazed over the years, uh, I've been able to see many times um, deafness and muteness instantly healed. And when the deaf ears are open, it's wonderful. But when the mute begin to speak instantly, it absolutely blows my mind. Um, one of the first times, not the first time, but one of them was I was uh, had a team. We were doing a clinic in a Muslim community in, in central India. And uh, a seven-year-old girl who was deaf and mute, because she'd never heard, was brought to the clinic. Her mother asked for medicine. And one of our team said, there's no medicine for that. But I'm going to pray, and Jesus is going to open her ears. And she prayed, and uh, suddenly the girl's looking around, this look we've seen so many times. And the team member said in English, oh, God, you're so good. And the little girl, who had never said a word because she'd never heard a word, said perfectly, oh, God, you're so good. And the mother went, ah, and began to talk to her in Telugu, in her own language, and she just talked back as if she'd been talking the full time. I'd been away out in the village. I came back. People showed me that little girl over there who now was at a table coloring and talking to people. How does the Lord do that? It amazes me. Uh, I've seen it all kinds of places. I was remembering in the Philippines, a little nine-year-old girl named Angelica, and the... um, Two of the team members prayed for her with a bunch of kids all around her, and her ears opened, and then she just started to speak. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing? I said to you last week, I believe Jesus is challenging us to ask for bigger things, to pray bigger prayers than we've ever prayed before. So the crowd sees it, and just like every crowd I've been around when the Lord's done this, uh, they were filled with amazement. And they said, nothing uh, like this has ever happened before. Um, Again, Christostom points out that the crowds placed Jesus before everyone else. Not merely, this is the best healing around, but but not merely before people who lived uh, at that time, but even before all who had ever lived. This is the greatest thing that's ever happened. But the Pharisees said, ah, he casts out demons because he is empowered by the prince of demons. Now, by the way, it, it's interesting and probably important that this is likely an interpolation. An interpolation is when a later scribe or translator puts a verse in. Probably it wasn't originally there. Uh, it is, however, there very authentically in chapter 12, verse 24, and we'll get to that later. But... Uh, Given the context, just looking at it at face value, Matthew's telling us 
that the closer the people came to understanding who Jesus really is, the more indignant, the more offended uh, that the, the Pharisees became. And frankly, they became foolish. That makes no sense. That, that uh, you know, he casts out demons because he's empowered by the prince of demons. It was a foolish argument. It'll be developed in chapter 12. Uh, yeah, chapter 12. Now, the next section is really powerful. Uh, Verse 35, then Jesus went about the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion upon them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. At the end of uh, chapter 4, there's almost the very same phrasing. And what it was, it was a transitional passage that Matthew put in. Okay, we've come through the introduction and the genealogy and his baptism and his temptation. And now we're starting in this new section called the Sermon on the Mount. Excuse me. Likewise, this is a summary. It provides a, a... a report and summary that prepares the way for the next discourse, which we're going to start next week. I'm very excited about it. Um, it's his discourse on, on discipleship and evangelism. So Matthew uses transitional passages like this, by the way, before each of the five discourses that are in this gospel. Uh, it often means a change of setting, or he calls a gathering of the disciples and crowds together. This passage serves as both a summary of his ministry in word, the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the theme of, uh, and deed, pardon me, uh, chapter 8 and 9. It's a summary, and it's a link to this theme of mission that's going to come up. Jesus shows compassion on the shepherdless crowds, sheep without a shepherd, and judgment on the leaders. He said they're harassed. That means they were bullied. They were helpless. They were unable to rescue themselves. This whole issue of of shepherds for God's people is is huge in the Old Testament as well as the New. Um, I'm going to give you two passages, and they're hard-hitting, but it is so important that we understand the need for shepherds for God's people. Uh, In Jeremiah 23, verses 2 and 4, Therefore, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to these shepherds. Instead of caring for my flock and leading them to safety, you've deserted them and driven them to destruction. Now I will pour out judgment on you for the evil one, for the evil you have done to them. Then I will appoint responsible shepherds who will care for them and they will never be afraid again. Not a single one will be lost or missing. I, the Lord, have spoken. And Ezekiel 34, 7 and 8, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord as surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord. You abandoned my flock and left them to be attacked by every wild animal. And though you were my shepherds, you didn't search for my sheep when they were lost. You took care of yourselves and you left the sheep to starve. 
He goes on and contrasts these false shepherds with true shepherds. Verse 12, as shepherds seek out their flocks when they are among their scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from the places to which they've been scattered on a day of cloud and thick darkness. Earlier on, we spoke of chapter 2, verse 6 in this gospel, where Matthew is looking ahead to the, the messianic promise. And he says this, In you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are, no, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people. Famously, John 10, 12, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. There's a growing conflict and tension between bad shepherds, which is what he is accusing, um, illuminating really, the, uh, the religious leaders of the day, that they're about holding on to the religious system and, and not taken care. And, and later on, this is going to get really strong when we get into the, the 20s of Matthew. You know, Matthew's gospel has got twice the references to the Pharisees of any of the other gospels. He's building tension. And, uh, and we're going to see more of that later. But it's starting here. When he sees them as sheep without a shepherd, but they've got, they've got Pharisees and scribes and, and Sadducees. They've got, and yet he says, no, there, there's no shepherds for them. He says, therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The challenge is not to be distracted by the needs and the great scope of the, of the harvest, but, but rather to, to recognize we're on mission. I said to someone two weeks ago, uh, I said that, the, the church doesn't have a mission. And they went, what? I said, the mission has a church. The mission came first. The mission is at the center of Matthew's gospel. He finishes with that. So we must be on mission. And he says, pray to the Lord of the harvest for workers. Where there, where there is prayer, there's mission. Where there's no prayer, and we rely on our strategies and our organization charts, ultimately there's no mission. Because Jesus says we've got to pray to the Lord of the harvest for mission. Frankly, this is why um, prayer is really important for us at Impact Nations. We have staff prayer. We are each praying (laughs) into the mission. We have uh, we have a, a a network. Of, of intercessors in countries all over the world that are praying. And then he says, send out workers. Literally, it's thrust out workers. Um, why do we need to thrust them out? Because the church is filled with workers who've been prepared, but they're still in church. They need to be thrust out. We need to put a fire in their heart and maybe under their feet. Well, let me just bring some conclusion here. When Jesus saw them harassed and helpless, 
Sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with compassion. Matthew, maybe more even than any other of the Gospels, focuses on the kingdom. He calls it the kingdom of the heavens. We've talked about that. But it's so under, so important that we understand that the motivation for kingdom activity is this. It's compassion. It's not power. It's not authority. Those things are there. But the motivation, the foundation of the kingdom is compassion. When, when he saw the the harassed and helpless crowds. He didn't see a ministry opportunity. He didn't see a chance to grow his ministry. He didn't see a chance to show people how anointed he was. What he felt was compassion. The word is splanknozomai, and it means to feel another's pain in your gut. Compassion is what kept Jesus going forward. And it kept him going forward in spite of being confronted with the pain of people and even the the criticism that was going to grow from others. And that continued on right to the cross. He, He, you know, we can get overwhelmed. We can in ministry. That's why I I love what Heidi Baker taught us years ago— Stop for the one. Compassion is about seeing the next one in front of you. Um, you know, I'm committed to training people in healing. I'm doing some of that uh, online. going to be doing some of that in, in uh, Uganda in a week or two. I'm going to be doing some of that in, in Albuquerque. I'm committed to it. And I'm committed to raising up disciples who are harvest workers. Our last major conference was called Workers for the Harvest. I'm committed to those things. But the foundation and the motivation for these things must be compassion. Compassion is is about canonic love. Jesus' self-emptying love for the sake of others. Luke 15, 20, one of my very favorite verses in the prodigal, the story of the prodigal. And while that prodigal was still a long way off, his father saw him had compassion for him and ran to him. Compassion sees beyond my own life and my own situation. It's why I need to. Two days ago, I'd get, I had an extra 45 minutes before I had to get, pick somebody up at the airport. So I went to an area of the poor where I'd never been before, and I just drove around and I made some notes so that I could see where we could effectively go and just love people. So compassion causes us to see beyond our lives and our own situation because we're willing to step out of the boundaries of our own situation. Compassion sees the invisible. I promise you that. Compassion, you begin to see people that others didn't see and frankly before you didn't see them, but once you do, they're everywhere. Compassion compels. He saw him and he ran toward him. If compassion doesn't call me to tangible action on behalf of others, it's just a sentimental feeling. It's not compassion. And he was moved with compassion. That's how Matthew finishes these wonderful two chapters. So this this verse, these three verses, tells me 
that when I am moving in compassion, then I'm truly following Jesus. Well, we're going to, in a moment, be together. Tim and I discuss some of this. And uh, again, um, next week, we're getting to chapter 10, his whole discourse on, on mission and evangelism, and it, it's just powerful. Uh, by the way, if any of you are watching this and you didn't get a chance to see our podcast two days ago with Brad Jerzak, I really encourage you to, to go there and, and look it up. God bless you. I'll see you in a minute. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm really, as, as I said last week, I'm so so glad that you took the time to do that chapter in, in two parts. Um, I'm really enjoying just going slow. And if it takes us till Christmas of 2022 to get through Matthew, I'm okay with that. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> it's so rich. It's good. Um, I, I've got some questions for us today. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to do just a, a quick ad uh, to talk about Impact Weekends. Uh, we haven't talked about that on this podcast in quite some time. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, I'm feeling a little more free to talk about it as, um, at least in the United States, things are opening up a little bit now. Uh, kind of, We're not post-COVID, but churches are gathering and things like that. And so uh, I wanted to just make people aware of what an impact weekend is, and I'll probably get your help to do that. But uh, impact weekends are typically uh, a Friday night and all-day Saturday uh, conference would be the traditional term, I suppose, whereby we are equipping people to uh, to go out and, and bring the kingdom to their community. Um and I wondered if you might uh, be able to just give in a minute or two here just a, sure. a quick idea of what you do, what you teach during an impact weekend. I might get you to move that microphone. I, I moved that microphone back and forgot to move it. There we are. Here you go. Um, sure. I love doing them. I've been doing them for a lot of years yep. um, overseas uh, and here. Um, what I am trying to do is two things. I'm trying to give them a bigger understanding of the gospel, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to activate them to see that that they really are equipped to be those who connect the kingdom of heaven. So I typically on Friday night, I teach a lot about how the kingdom is so practical and how it relates to healing. Um, sometimes we'll teach on compassion. Yep. Um, and then we move into, you know, and that would be Saturday, and then we move into giving them some stuff that over the years, I guess, I've learned about healing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then we, uh, I teach them that simple healing model that we use all over the world, and then get the folks to pray for each other, yeah. and they go, wow, it works. And then after lunch, we go out. In fact, that's really a condition. If anybody asks if I would like to come, I say, great, I want to be able to take people out. And we go out, come back, the testimonies, and then um, Saturday night, I will do um, uh, some more teaching, and often on what it means to follow Jesus. And then, you know, almost all the time, I end up uh, preaching the Sunday morning at their church, 
And sometimes I'll do a, a thing Sunday night. Yeah. Uh, but but it's about activating. People mm-hmm. will pray for the sick. They're going to see people healed. And some of them are going to lead uh, folks to, to Christ, maybe yeah. for the first time. Yeah. So in this season, we've not been able to do journeys of compassion because uh, international travel, um, specifically in the in the nations we typically visit, is just not possible right now because of the pandemic. But uh, we are here at Impact Nations uh, are always intentional about equipping people to bring the kingdom of God to, to demonstrate the gospel in your community. Uh, journeys of compassion are an awesome training ground for that. Uh, without that, I would encourage you to um, look into an Impact Weekend. You can head to impactnations.com slash impactweekends. Uh, maybe not plural. I don't know. Isaiah's got the lower third up there. I can't see it. but um, And there's a link in the notes. Um, and talk to your pastor. Talk to the leaders in your church about doing something like this where we can together uh, start getting excited about seeing the gospel coming and transforming lives in your own community uh, and activating the people in your church, I, you uh, you mentioned near the end uh, about lighting a fire, uh, and I I thought you might say light a fire under their butts to get them out of the church, uh, and that's part of the deal. Is like let's get butts out of seats and it out into the community. Get and sh- people discover, I love this. Yes, <laughs> they go out kind of like, uh, and they come frightened. back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> indeed, always. Yeah. So impactnations.com slash impact weekend. Um, all right, let's talk about some questions. I want to I want to back up to something you said right near the beginning of the, this week's teaching, which was um, you, you talked about being enslaved to time, and uh, mm. particularly in the West, we're very we're calendar driven. We've got places to be, uh, people to see, things like that, and uh, being interruptible can be hard. And yet, what we see here is Jesus uh, is interruptible. He's never in a hurry. Um, how can we in the West learn to be interruptible? Do we need to tell our our peers, "Hey, by the way, um, I live interruptible. I, I I'm I'm ready for the Holy Spirit to tap me on the shoulder at any moment, so I might be late." Uh, how do we do that? That's uh, that's that's a great question. Um, and we are very um, much driven by our our schedule. Yeah, right. You know, I used to have a a day timer, and then I got digital, and I got a Palm Pilot, <laughs> yep. and now my phone can do it for me. Um, when we had Cherith Nordling on, maybe three, four months ago, she said that when she wakes up in the morning, she says, well, Jesus, what are we going to do today? Remember that? <laughs> I do. I love I that. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And that really is something that I'm trying to appropriate more and more in my life. Mm. Um, and... I'm trying to not schedule every hour of every day. And I am, you know, I am a classic type A. If I just let myself, I'd be scheduled from when I wake up to go to bed, but I'm not. Yeah. Um, I've talked about the gift of welcome before. It's part of that inclusive life. And the gift of welcome welcomes you not only into my home, but into my heart, into my life. Yeah. And I've got to be interruptible, interruptible with that. And so I think as we get our eyes turned outward, it starts to free us. In other words, the end of what I taught today connects to the beginning of what I taught today, that compassion begins to free us up Mm -hmm. to be flexible. Yeah. 
So let's talk about compassion in this context then. Uh, one of the things you also said uh, in today's teaching, which I've heard you say a few times recently, is you know um, we can slip into metrics when it comes to healing. Like, all right, I got two arms and a deaf yeah. ear today. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that's actually moving away from the rhythm of compassion. Yep. How do we, you know, in these encounters where perhaps we're working, we're not working with, but uh, we're encountering strangers and we see them um, limping along the street and we say, hey, can I pray for you or whatever. In those moments, and you've talked about, you know, let's not make it super spiritual and let's not make it too long and drawn out. How do we demonstrate compassion? How do we demonstrate God's love beyond the, the fact that they will be healed? How can we... Yeah share compassion, bring compassion to the interaction. Uh, that is, again, now I realize this, that ties in with the woman with the hemorrhage, yeah. their humanity. When I'm out, and as you know, I go out and pray for people. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I can see a woman's face in front of me right now from uh, just a few weeks ago. Before I pray for what their need is, I'm always taking a moment. I say, hey, my name's Steve. What's yours? Yeah. People will, that's one thing they'll give you. They'll give you their name. And it's like, oh, I'm really glad to meet you, Mary. Isn't that great that we just connected right now or something? Mm-hmm. And uh, I bet it's pretty tough having that that bad back for all this time. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's hard. But we're going to pray now and Jesus is going to heal you. And when I'm done with it all, um, if it's out just out on the street like that, and I, you know, I work with homeless some, you know, I, I, I beyond the healing is just their humanity. Mm. If I get a chance to pray for someone at the supermarket, um, when we're done, I'm going to say, "Hey, when I get together for a coffee," and uh, so again, the gift of welcome. I'm inviting yeah. them into my yeah. life. And that ties back into that we were made to be known. Uh, We're made for community. And so when you begin to show even a desire to know, uh, that is showing compassion right off the bat. Isn't it powerful what Jesus said to that woman with the hemorrhage? The first thing he said is daughter. Daughter, yeah. I mean, wow, Hmm. daughter. Powerful. Mary Magdalene is weeping, weeping, weeping uh, at the at the tomb, and Jesus says, "Mary, hmm. it, we must recognize not the macro but the individual." Yeah, Amen. Uh, last question. Let's talk about faith. Uh, Jesus gets to the uh, home of Jairus. The flute players are making their noise. And he Don't forget the whaler. And the whaler, <laughs> absolutely. These were paid positions, by the way. Did you know it's that? It's a good gig. I'm a flute player. I could have yeah, yeah. done that. And I've heard you wail a little when <laughs> <Yeah>. you were young. <laughs> um, and then he says, get out, which, you know, yeah, thanks, strong. Matthew, for that. Yeah. Uh, how do we and and so you, Matthew is making the point like faith an environment of faith makes a difference. Yes. Uh, how can we build up faith in two different places? One, uh, these encounters where we we may be talking with somebody who doesn't know Christ, yeah. uh, who doesn't have hasn't been raised church or whatever. How do we build up faith for them? 
And then I perhaps just as difficult among the church. How do we build up faith well, that's when it's difficult. time to start praying for, that's for more difficult. healing? I promise you that. Yeah. I've said to you for years, the, the hardest place to see healing is in the church. And, and I'm not being snarky. I love the church. But we've got so much baggage and, and we, we still think that there's condition. I talked today. There was no conditions. He just yeah. healed. So how do we build up faith in someone uh, I often, if I'm in the park, I'm hoping to get to the park the next few days and just get talking to people and somebody will get healed. Mm-hmm. And then I'll be able to say, you know what? Just a couple of minutes ago, I watched Jesus heal this lady. She had a terrible headache and it was all gone. I will do that. Or I might say, well, that's just, that's really hurts. I, I know it does. And, but you know what? I've seen Jesus heal that exact condition. Mm-hmm. And I don't give a big, long story. Yeah. But they go, oh. And I'll say, you've heard me say this out in villages. Yeah. If he, if, you know, we'll t- I'll tell him all the people who got healed today, not all, but some, and I'll say, and if he healed her, he'll heal you. Amen. Right? <laughs> yep. Absolutely. Uh, good. And you, and same, same tactic in either, either environment in terms of. Give me back our two environments. What are they? Uh, the church. T- oh, and, the, and in the yeah. church. Yeah, in the church. Yeah, that's a that's uh, that's a tough gig. Or do but, you just say get out? Anybody who has that no, faith? <laughs> no. What I will what I will do. Yeah, uh, I'm going to be teaching a, a group of church folk next month, and for sure, I will um, call a few people up, and they'll watch Jesus heal them. And then I'll see now that yeah, let's do that's this. building faith. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our time today. But thank you so much for joining us. Uh, as always, we're on Facebook Live, YouTube Live, uh, 3 p.m. on Thursdays. That's 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, we'd love it if you can join us live. Uh, participate in the comments. We'd love to see those comments. Uh, if you can't see us live, it's still cataloged on uh, YouTube after the fact for sure. Uh, and also, if you'd like to get it delivered uh, via audio, just head to impactnations.com slash podcast. Uh, you can hit some Subscribe on one of your uh, main podcast providers, and that'll be delivered to your phone every week as well. Um, and don't forget, impactnations.com slash impactweekend to learn more about uh, how we might be able to come and uh, bring the kingdom of God to your community. Uh, thanks so much for being with us this week. We'll see you again next week. Thank you. God bless you.